From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view. We know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciles us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. I really enjoy the basketball tournaments this time of year. I was watching uh, some of our state women play the other night, and our team was doing really well. The other team was definitely out of it with still a couple of minutes to go, when suddenly the other coach jumped up and signaled timeout. And one of the announcers on television said, oh my, doesn't she know this one's over? And the other one said, patience, patience. She's doing what good teachers and coaches always do. They just keep on teaching and coaching because that's what they do. Dr. Victor Paul Furnish says of Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, Paul has not given up on this contentious bunch over at Corinth. He reminds us that the Romans had destroyed the Greek city of Corinth in the year 146 before the Common Era, that it lay in ruins for 102 years. That when Julius was Caesar, shortly before his assassination, he decided the Greeks really had found a great place for a city, he sent freed slaves and retired Roman legionnaires to refound the city of Corinth. And 94 years later, Paul walked into town. Corinth would never be the same after Paul arrived. We believe he spent about a year there, probably from the spring of 50 until about the spring of 51. Dr. Furnish believes that Paul wrote the first letter back to the church, probably in 54, that he wrote the first two-thirds of the second letter, as we have it, uh, in 55, and perhaps the last third of that letter in the summer of 56. He probably died in the persecutions of Nero about 64 or 65 in Rome. This passage today, he's still teaching, still coaching, still trying to help this church at Corinth become what they have the capability of being in that Mediterranean world. Let's take a look. Number one, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. All this is of God, Paul wrote. All of this is of God. It was he who was reconciling the world to himself through Christ Jesus. I encourage our young people here in Boston Avenue to go to our great Methodist colleges and universities. I tell them that they will have to work hard. In our, our Methodist colleges and universities, we make people read and write, read and write. No fill in the blank, no multiple choice, no true or false. You will have to read and write. 
But you will also be made to take courses you probably didn't want to take. No matter what your major in most of these great colleges and universities, you have to take music appreciation, art appreciation. When I took art appreciation and saw representations of some of the greatest paintings in the world, I never dreamed I would get to see them real one day. But Gail and I have been to many of the great places of the world where you can see this art. The works of three great artists, all of whom ended up in Venice in Italy 500 years ago. Some of their very best has been collected and loaned out to the museum in Boston right now. Really pretty amazing that three such talented painters would all end up in the same city at the same time. The oldest of them was named Titian. Titian was born in 1488. By the time he was in his late teens, people could see his genius by the time he was 20 years old, some of the wealthiest people in Venice were asking him to paint portraits of the people they loved the most. He was very successful. But while he was 20, another was born. You know him as Tintoretto. That wasn't his name. It wasn't his name. Oh, it's almost a term of derision, really. Tintoretto's father was a dyer of, of, of cloth. Uh, when sheep's wool was made into uh, skeins of thread, they were dyed in pretty colors, and that's what Tintoretto's father did. There's another word for dye, and that's tint. And so he was simply called, well, you know, the tinter, the tinter's son. Tintoretto became his name, but he was magnificent. Magnificent. He was only ten years old when the third was born. Uh, he came from Verona, so most uh, people who see his beautiful works do not know his name. He was called Veronese, Veronese, because of his hometown. He ended up in Venice. So here was Titian, 30 years old when the third of them was born. Now all three of them in the same city and all doing wonderful work. Some of the most beautiful colors, some of the greatest depth of perception brought in about 450 years ago with these three great painters. But in Boston, though they've assumed uh, some subject matter that's different from painter to painter, they discovered that all three of them had painted one story from the Bible. All three of them painted one story, and that was the story of the disciples on the way to Emmaus on Easter Sunday. Remember the story. They're walking along on the way home, kicking their feet in the dirt. They are really down. One is saying to the other, we thought he was the one. We thought this one was the one. And the Romans killed him, and they buried him in the hole in the side of a hill. Suddenly they were joined by a third one. They did not recognize this third person began to explain to them the scriptures, meaning the Hebrew scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, explaining to them the scriptures. When they got to their home, it was dark. They said, it's not safe out on the roads at night. Please spend the night with us. Have dinner with us. They compelled him, Luke says in telling the story. They compelled him to come in and eat with them. <clears throat> but when he took the bread... And broke it when he shared the cup. They recognized him for who he was. He disappeared from their dining room at that point, And they got up, weary as they must have been, 
and ran all the way back to Jerusalem, pounding on the door of that upper room, saying to the disciples inside, We have seen him. He is no longer dead. He has been raised. The Bible is making the point that God so loved the world that he gave his son that on this one who knew no sin, all of our sins were placed so that God would not hold trespasses against us, but that we could come to know that God is tired of enmity, enmity between him and us. God wants right relationship with us. Number two, Paul says in this passage, I entreat you, brothers and sisters, be reconciled. <clears throat> God has done what was necessary. Will you receive God's gift of right relationship? Will you believe with all your heart that God does in fact love you? Does in fact want only good to come to you? That if something bad is happening to you, God is grieving with you. If something good is happening to you, God is celebrating with you. God wants good to come to you. Will you receive his gift? This is one of those seasons of the year where basketball overlaps baseball. Baseball's just getting underway, of course. And those who follow that game are more interested in it, eager for baseball season to get underway. There are always authors who write books that come out right at the beginning of baseball, hoping someone will buy a book. There's a new biography of Yogi Berra. This biographer says that Joe Garagiola has done Yogi a great disservice, and he probably loves Yogi better than anybody in the world except his own wife and family. They grew up as little Italian boys in the streets of St. Louis. But that Joe has told so many Yogi Berra stories that today's generation doesn't know what a great athlete Yogi Berra really was. You've read some of these statements of Yogi. If you listen carefully, they really do make sense. He said about a famous Italian restaurant in St. Louis, nobody goes there anymore. The lines are too long. Well, we all understand what that means, but Joe has told them over and over so people think, well, Yogi's not really bright. He is bright. He was a great, great athlete as well. I was a boy growing up when Yogi Berra was playing for the New York Yankees. We had no television at that time. <clears throat> we had radio. But it was easy to keep up with who played for whom because they played for the same team their whole career. If you ever knew who the third baseman was for the Cleveland Indians, you knew forever who the third baseman was. You knew who played shortstop and who played second and who the best pitchers were. And everybody knew who the Yankees were. While Yogi was catching for them, they won the pennant 14 times and the World Series 10 of those 14 times. Yogi Berra was particularly dangerous when men were on base. Casey Stengel said, if I could put anybody at the plate when we had somebody else on base, I chose Yogi. In his younger years, he played with Joe DiMaggio. In his later years, he played with Mickey Mantle, two of the greatest that ever hit a baseball. And yet seven times, Yogi Berra led them in runs batted in. When he retired, he'd hit more home runs than any other catcher who'd ever played the game. But I want to tell you a little bit more about Yogi. His mother and father came to this country from Italy. They were very poor immigrants. They lived in an Italian neighborhood in St. Louis. But they took their kids to church every Sunday. Every Sunday. 
Yogi's been married to his wife more than 60 years. They had three sons, and they took them to Mass every Sunday. Yogi was asked one time, uh, did you and Garagiola and these other guys have good equipment? Oh, no, he said we started out with sticks and balls. I never had a pair of spikes, he said. Never had a pair of spikes? Why, no, he said. Listen to this line. How could you ask your mother and daddy in the throes of a great depression to buy you new shoes you couldn't wear to church? Isn't that a great line? How could you ask them to buy you a new pair of shoes you couldn't wear to church? Because you wore your best to church and you went every Sunday, you see. Right after the first service, a man came up to me and he said, he said, a good friend of mine, a good Catholic friend of mine, got to go to New York City and see Yogi just before he retired. He went to Mass that morning before he went to see the Yankees play baseball that Sunday afternoon. And when he looked down the pew, he was sitting right down the pew from Yogi Berra. I entreat you, be reconciled to God. Accept God's gift. Know how important it is to be in right relationship with God and accept God's gift. Number three. Ah, here comes the part about the new creation. Your translation, the New Revised Standard Version, a very good one, says, see, the word in Greek is idu, idu. Luke loves this word in his gospel, uses it again and again. And in the old King James, it was always translated, behold. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. If you read my column in our church paper this week, you know that I said, I've heard preachers preach on this text all my life. I was raised in the church myself. We went every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. I've heard lots of preachers preach on this text. And I remember thinking when I would walk out of the church, they've been saying everything's new and it looks like the same old, same old to me. So what is the point here? Let me illustrate. Last summer, one of our Vesper services focused on the problems in Darfur, Sudan. In the Sudan, in the Darfur region, 300,000 people have been murdered and 2.2 million have been displaced. Raoud Hari, one of those caught up in this great, great genocide in Darfur, he saw the military come, sometimes shooting with rifles and sometimes hacking people to death with machetes. He saw his own brother die. This young man was captured. He was thrown into a prison. He said he was hanged upside down. And while he was hanging upside down, gasping for breath, soldiers beat him across the back and buttocks until blood ran down his neck and dripped off his head. Several times the guards, he said, pointed pistols right at his head pulled back the lever, cocked it, and then would turn and walk away. Say, next time it'll be the real thing. Next time the real thing. A lot of people have been trying to focus attention on Darfur, and at least enough has been focused that some things have been made right. This young man 
was sentenced to 25 years in prison for doing nothing except belonging to the wrong tribe in the Sudan. But because of United Nations efforts, he and a few others were released. Eventually, he made his way to Chad, and from Chad was able to get on an airplane and fly to New York City. Hear him. When I stepped off that plane in the United States of America, everything had become new. Everything had become new. You see, it's not the United States. It's the young men that stepped off the plane. It's not the world. It's the person who just rose from her or his baptism, her or his confirmation, her or his moment at the table with the risen Lord, and now sees everything differently. Having received the gift of God's grace, all things for you become new. If the God who blasted billions of stars into the heavens knows your name, whispers to your deepest spirit, I know you, you are my daughter. You are my son. I'm so glad you've come home to me. It's supposed to make a difference in the way you eat breakfast tomorrow. Number four, so we are ambassadors for Christ, Paul says. We have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. A part of that message is to the world, be reconciled to God. The gift is offered. Receive God's gift. He stands at the door and knocks. Open the door and let him come into your heart and life. But if this has happened to you, then guess what? Now you are a part of the ministry of reconciliation, helping others know that they are loved of God, that they are people for whom Christ Jesus was willing to die, for whom God was willing to raise his son from the dead. But it's also about our being reconciled to each other. To each other. Immaculate Ilabagiza was a part of another great war in Africa, the one in Rwanda. Two tribes, one the majority, deciding to try to eliminate the minority. In Rwanda in the early 1990s, 800,000 were killed. Almost a million. Immaculee says that one night the killers came to her village. You could see them coming house by house, swinging machetes, horribly slicing people into pieces, killing them one by one by one. She said, my father caught me by the shoulders and said, go out the back door immaculately and run faster than you have ever run in your life. Run faster than you have ever run in your life. Do not look back. Run to the preacher's house. And she said, I ran. And when I got to the preacher's house, he quickly motioned to me to get into the bathroom of his tiny little house. And when I got in there, there were eight other people already there. Nine of us in this tiny bathroom. The killers came. They searched one tiny room after the other. But for some reason, they didn't open the bathroom door. God saved us, she said. God saved us. They kept coming back. We eight stayed in that bathroom 91 days. I lost 50 pounds. 
The preacher was smuggling in what little bit of food he had. He just had so little. But after 91 days, he cracked the door and said, the French forces are two miles away. I'm going to help you get to the back door. And you run faster than you've ever run before to the French forces. If you can get there, you'll be safe. And she said, we ran. We ran again. And finally she said, I got to New York City, the United States of America. I feel a need to tell everybody in America, it's not about things. It's not about possessions. It's about people. It's about people. I promise.